Hey, good morning, Mendham Hills family. This message, well, it's as personal as a message as I've, I've ever actually given you. Now, it's being recorded on a Thursday. You'll be viewing it, if you're part of our online community, you'll be viewing it on Sunday. And in these intervening days, well, my life is about to be inalterably changed. Because between the time I record this message and the time that you view this message, I will have walked my daughter, Courtney, my firstborn child, my pride and my joy, my little girl, I will have walked her down this aisle on her wedding day. And I will have given her away to her husband, Ryan, a young man that, honestly, I could not be more pleased with. In one sense, it's a moment I've actually been preparing my whole life for, yet in another very real sense, I find myself completely unprepared for it. And so today, this Sunday after Father's Day, on the eve of one of the most momentous days in any father's life, I thought I would take this Sunday to share with you what the Lord is laying on my heart about this coming Friday. And of course, now I reserve the right to change my mind about what I'm thinking based on what actually happens when I work court down the aisle. So you might want to watch this service, say, at 9 and head over to church for the in-person at 10.30 to see if I've had some new revelations or changed my mind. You know, I really wanted a boy. Just being honest, I mean, I, I know that the right thing to say is, well, as long as the baby is healthy, uh, I'll be happy with anything. And, and sure, I said that too. But look, my heart was saying, as long as the baby is healthy and a boy, I'll be happy. You know, people are always like, well, as long as it has 10 fingers and 10 toes. Me, I was hoping for just one other appendage. And you know, Joan and I, we never found out the gender of any of our kids prior to them being born. We just waited it out. We wanted to do it the old-fashioned way and, and be excited. And, and excited, excited I was. Most of my excitement was actually because the birthing process was over. It was a very tough delivery for my wife, who, while she wanted to get an epidural, due to a little medical mix-up, she was not provided an epidural, and so it was birth the old-fashioned way, the way it was meant to be, painful. It was very hard to watch someone you love go through something like that, so much so that it was over. I looked at Joan and I said, "Hon." I don't think that I can go through something like that ever again. And I kind of remember her shooting me the side eye. For reasons still unknown to me, she didn't fully appreciate how much I had just been through. And if that wasn't enough, the baby had 10 fingers, 10 toes, and well, that was it, no more. And so things were off to an unexpected start. And that was before I even got a look at my newborn little bundle of joy. You know, and look, this is never a great thing, but we put so many expectations on our kids, don't we? Those expectations can be a terrible burden for them to live under, and, and I'm no different. I've messed that up, too. I had some expectations for my baby. I had expectations about what she was going to look like. I mean, in my mind, my baby was going to look like, well, my baby pictures, bald or maybe just a couple wisps of hair. Or maybe if she was going to look like her mama, she'd be blonde-haired, a little toe-head that the doctor would hand me. Once again, expectations unmet. Inside that little swaddling blanket was a little girl, all right, but she was covered, I mean covered, in dark 
black hair. Check out this little girl. So this is all going on, and, and, and they, they hand me Courtney, and I look over at Joan, and I said to her, after all you have put me through so far today, and now this, you want to explain this now, or should we just wait for the DNA testing? I mean, Courtney and I, we were off to an unexpected start. But then something happened. See, they handed me a pair of scissors, and they, they asked me to cut the umbilical cord. Now, I know some of you have done that. The pressure, right? I mean, one bad cut, and you can mess that little girl's belly button up forever. Now, it did occur to me for a moment that it might keep her out of bikinis in the future, so I, I didn't mind that idea. But I mean, I didn't even get a practice clip. And so, with a snip that I feel is worthy of praise by Dr. Fauci, she was free. She was an independent operative in a world that suddenly seemed very big and very dangerous. And after a brief snuggle with her mama, they placed her in my arms, and they, they told me to follow them to the other room. Now, I mean, it was, just, it was just the next room. It was one room over. Couldn't have been more than 40 or 50 feet. But it's what happened on that walk for 40 or 50 feet that changed me, something I can't really fully explain. I, I can't put it into words. Some of you know the experience, maybe. As I carried that, that, that hairball, I mean, as I carried that little girl down the hall, something, and it was more than a feeling. It, it, that would be an under, underestimation to call it a feeling. Something literally came over me. It enveloped me. It surrounded me. It shot through me. And again, I can't describe it. Um, all I can tell you is, and this is going to sound weird, okay? I, I understand that. And remember, I am an imperfect person, and I'm a left, less perfect pastor. But the one thought, I remember it, it was so surreal. The one thought that kept going through my mind on that walk down that hall was, was this. If somebody does anything to this little girl, I will kill them. It wasn't a good thought. It certainly wasn't a godly thought. But it was my thought. And the emotional power of that thought, it, it was overwhelming. Now, now, when each of my next kids came along, I felt the same way on the same walk. But it wasn't a new thought. This time, I had never had this thought go through my mind before. It, it was for the first time. I never had a feeling like that. I never had a power come over me like that. And that line, it just kept going through my mind. If somebody does something to this little girl, I will kill them. I mean, it was so strange. Five minutes ago, I didn't even know this tiny human being, and now I was ready to kill somebody for her. The truth was, and all this was flashing through my mind, I was ready to die for her. In fact, when they placed her on the cold scale to weigh her and she screamed, I thought I was going to need to be restrained. You see, the walk down that hallway, it changed me. It, it changed Courtney and I forever. Not unlike the walk down this hallway, this aisle, this 40 or 50 feet, will on Friday night. Because again, after that walk, we will never be the same again either. You know who kind of summed up the way I feel today about my grown daughter? 
It's a guy named Jairus. He was a, a leader in the synagogue in the city of Capernaum. He, he was a church guy like me. And the story of his daughter is recorded by the gospel writers, all of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark records his story this way. He says that a large crowd gathered around Jesus while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl is dying. Please, come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. Did you catch that? How Jairus referred to his daughter? It, it was not just as his daughter. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, a father comes to Jesus with a similar request for healing of his son, and, and that's what he calls him, my son. But here Jairus calls his daughter his little daughter. It, it has this sense of intimacy to it. Jesus might my little girl is dying. But what makes it even more interesting is that his little girl is, she's actually not that little. You'll see this soon. She, she's actually 12 years old. I mean, that, that's not so little in our culture. It's not too far from being of marrying age in Jairus' day. But yet it was to Jairus, his little girl. Can you feel that? And so Jesus, feeling it too, left and, and went with him. And I can't help but think that Jairus, on the walk, with the one hope in all of creation for his daughter in tow, that he's got to be thinking, well, something like I was thinking, if anybody stops us or gets in Jesus' way, I'm going to kill them. Mark says that a large crowd followed in the, and they pressed in around Jesus. And a, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal. She had suffered a great deal. Under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and, and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Betsy Barber, who is a professor at Talbot School of Theology, she makes a super interesting observation about this scene. She writes that in this crowd is a woman of faith who's had an issue of blood for 12 years. Now, did you catch the parallel? The dying girl is 12 years old, and the woman has had an illness for 12 years. For as long as this little girl has been alive, this woman has been hemorrhaging from a disease. And what a disease. According to the book of the law in the Old Testament, a book called Leviticus, her issue of, of blood makes her unclean. So besides suffering this, this very painful and messy, this, this weakening physician that all of her money that had been spent on doctors has not cured, she's unclean as well. This means that her husband and, and maybe her children cannot even eat the food she's cooked. They cannot sit on chairs which she sat. They can't touch her or hug her or kiss her without becoming unclean themselves. She isn't allowed into worship services. Yet she listens to this Jesus and she responds with faith. 
unclean or not, she knows that if she can just touch his clothes, she would be made well. Now think of this. The Mosaic law is reversed here. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean and contaminated by her, she is healed and purified by the power that resides in him. This is who Jesus is. But then, then something even more amazing And on this day, on this day for me as a dad, even more poignant happens. Mark tells us that at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? I mean, this shows just how crazy and chaotic the scene is, right? The disciples actually kind of mock Jesus' question. Jesus, do you see the scene around us? How can you ask who touched you? Everybody's pushing up against you. Jesus, forget it and move on. Give up. What must Jairus be thinking right now? If one more person touches him, I'm going to kill them. But, Mark records, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, She came and she fell at his feet and trembling with fear, trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. Why? Why is this now healed woman trembling with fear? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the disciples are ticked. Jairus is fuming. His daughter's dying. And unclean women don't touch rabbis. She's scared to death about the rebuke that's going to come. She's got to be thinking, maybe she should have just stayed home. Maybe she should have given up and stayed far from Jesus. I mean, maybe that's what Jesus demanded after all. And so as you enter the story, right, the the crowd at this point is likely jeering her because they realize she might have touched them and made them unclean. That crowd, maybe now with stone in hand, leans in as Jesus prepares to speak. And Mark writes that he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You're free. Now now get this. Right in the middle of a story about Jairus and his love for his suffering daughter, a story that everybody can sympathize with, Jesus stops And hear this now. For the one and only time in all of the gospel accounts, he chooses this time and this moment to call an individual, this unclean individual, daughter. You see, I can't help but think that there's a lesson for Jairus and the disciples and the crowd and the church there. John, you know how you feel about Courtney? Jairus, you know how you feel about your daughter that's 12 years old? That's the exact same way I feel about this woman who has suffered for that same time. Jairus, John, church, do you get it? No matter how busy I am, no matter how pressing the other needs, unclean, unwelcome you might perceive somebody to be, I stop, I heal, and I free my daughters. Everybody that puts their faith in me is my little girl. Well, 
I mean, if Jared was, uh, Jared was frustrated before, his, his frustration is about to move towards anger. It's about to boil over. Who could blame him? Because while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? I mean, can you only imagine the, the pain and the anger and the frustration? These are the first wor for, worst four words that any father could ever hear. Your daughter is dead. And again, the crowd, the crowd has the same misunderstanding of Jesus. Look, don't bother him anymore. Jesus is busy. He's got other people to heal, captives to free, tables to flip. Don't bother him with your dead daughter. It's too late. And it was into that pain and into that, that worry and that fear and that despair, the fear that every father has ever had for every son and every daughter, Jesus speaks. I want you to hear this. Overhearing what they had said, don't bother the teacher. Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus, John, moms and dads, don't be afraid, just believe. And so what does Jesus do? And man, could we learn something from this? He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. See, apparently Jesus had had enough of the unbelieving crowd. Heck, he had had enough of most of half of the, of the half-believing disciples. And so he leaves them all behind. He doesn't want Jairus listening to them anymore. But in Jesus' day and in ours, unbelieving crowds seemed to be everywhere. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. But they laughed at him. Some of you know the story. Have you ever caught that before? They laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus which seems super blasphemous, but, but look, I mean, up until this very moment, for everyone in the room, death has had an unblemished record. Death was undefeated up until this moment. In their experience, there is no power greater than death. There is no power that can overcome the grave, and so they laughed at him. I just, I just love the next line. After he put them all out, after he put them all out, can you imagine Jesus? All right, that's it. Everybody out. Gosh. If we would just put out all of the unbelieving and mocking voices, especially the ones in our own heads. It was then that he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means... Little girl, I can't tell you how much I love this as a dad. Mark records that Jesus calls Jairus' daughter the same thing Jairus did. He calls what in their culture was more or less a grown woman. He calls her little girl because apparently no matter how old you may be, you are still Jesus' little girl. And Mark records it, and makes, he makes sure we understand it because it was that 
breathtaking. It was that beautiful and intimate. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. Because no matter how old you are, you're still God's little girl. That's the way he feels about you. The truth is both men and women, that's the intimacy he has for you. The father's feeling of compassion and affection and protection. The one I had walking down the hall, he has for you, for men and for women. Because no matter how old you are, he feels about you the way a father feels about his little girl. And I might add, because no matter how dead you might be, your dad is still calling sons and daughters back to life in the midst of laughing and unbelieving crowds. Now, here's the truth. As a father, it, it doesn't escape me that all of this love and intimacy is happening when Jerus's daughter was 12. She is a, as a father who's raised two teenage daughters. Now, I can tell you that things, well, they get a little more relationally difficult when your daughter turns, oh, say, 13. For example, when Courtney turned 13, See, I, I still only had eyes for her. But, and this was painful, suddenly being daddy's little girl was just not enough anymore. Courtney had developed eyes for other boys. It was a time, it was a time when, when um, she used to ask me when she wanted to know something, and, and whenever I told her, she assumed that I knew what I was talking about, and she went with it. Yeah, in those teen years, it all changed. I remember one time I, I was sitting downstairs and Courtney came down the stairs to ask me what time the Super Bowl that was coming on next Sunday, what time the Super Bowl was going to start. And I, I said, Courtney, it starts at 6.25. Now, at the time, Courtney was dating a kid that played freshman football. We'll call him Jimmy for now. And, and she says back to me that, well, Dad, Jimmy says the game starts at 4.30. So I told her, no, Court, the game starts at 6.25. The Super Bowl always starts around 6.30. And then... She put her hands on her hips. She looked at me with a dismissive look. Uh, she kind of rolled her eyes, flipped her hair, and said, Dad, who do you think knows more about football, you or Jimmy? Those teen years, they're tough. I mean, at some point, especially with her, she was a strong-willed girl. It was like if I said something was red, to Courtney it was blue. If I said be home by 11, she made sure not to clock in before midnight. And of course, Look, you know, just being honest, I didn't help things. I mean, what did I know about raising a girl? I, I knew what boys needed and wanted from their fathers. I was a boy, but girls? And, you know, it wasn't me raising Courtney. I mean, it wasn't me now with decades more wisdom and experience in life. I was 28 years younger. Heck, I was still growing up myself. I was trying to raise her while I was raising myself. In some ways, we were growing up together. Like I said, I knew boys. See, I knew how they thought and what they thought about. And so I was always fighting more to make the curfew like 9 or 10 and not 11. I was, sometimes in those early years, too protective, too tough, too strict. I had too high expectations. I was, and Courtney and I have talked about this, I was an imperfect father. And because I'm a guy... Sometimes when we fought in those teen years, I have to tell you, I, I had the guy impulse, which is to just shut down emotionally to her. 
She wanted to disobey, that's fine. She would face my wrath and my silence. She got discipline and then she got distance. Gentlemen, I know this is our MO. We tend to respond to a lack of respect by withholding love. Listen to me now. You must overcome this. Rick Johnson, he's written about a dozen books on parenting. He started the nonprofit called Better Dads. He says that these teen years, they're almost always the years when the break comes between fathers and daughters. And he writes that the problem is that this is actually when your daughter needs you the most, though they seemingly appreciate you the least. In fact, he says that the most common comment his ministry receives by teen girls they work with is that they are heartbroken because their fathers didn't love them enough to fight for them, to stand up for them, to, to stand up to them sometimes. They tended as they grew into teens to emotionally pull away. In fact, I would tell you that maybe my most poignant moment in my relationship with Courtney happened just this way. I, I was driving to church one day, good pastor that I am. I had some worship music on. I was thanking God for his love for me and his grace for me and his forgiveness of me. And it was right at that moment where God in my soul spoke and said, John, you enjoy that about me, do you? My love and grace and forgiveness? Well, then why don't you go home and show it to your daughter? You see, Court and I had been fighting over something and, and, and well, I, I was doing what was natural for me. She disobeyed, I disciplined, and I emotionally disappeared. Well, it took some time for me to get there, a week or so, but, but God wore me down, and eventually I called Courtney in, and I apologized that I had been a bad example of her heavenly father to her, and that not only did I forgive her, that I would never, ever again mention anything about our fight, and I would choose to forget as best as I could. I would never again see her through the filter of her mistake. God taught me that day that this is how you fight for your daughter because this is how he fights for us. This is how he forgives us. This is how he sees us. And this is how he loves us. Well, in the teen years especially, the days are long, but that decade is fast. And before you know it, you got a full-grown woman on your hands. And well, that's what I have now a full-grown woman. And yet, like Jairus' daughter, she's still my little girl. Now, if you know Courtney and I, if, if you're friends with either of us, you know how close we are. We, we have a crazy close bond. We love each other more than I think either of us could probably explain to you. I think both of us would tell you there are a few people on earth we would like to hang out with more than each other, which is why the one day when she came over and told me that some guy, Ryan, wanted to talk to me about them getting married, I informed her that for me this would be no informal chat or a mere ceremonial hoop to jump through. I told her if he was going to come talk to me about marrying her, that he needed to prepare himself for a serious discussion. In fact, to prepare him ahead of time for that discussion, I took the liberty of writing Ryan a letter. Well, a six-page letter. Its contents, I'll share some of them at their wedding. Most of it will stay between Ryan and I. I'll let you in on one part of it, though. I wrote to Ryan that soon after Joan and I got engaged, 
quote, we began to pray together for our not yet conceived children. And believe it or not, their future spouses. We'd gone to a family life conference when we were engaged and that advice was imparted to us and, and so we took it seriously and we began to do it. When Courtney was a little girl, I can remember very specifically praying over her and asking God. I, I remember thinking this in my mind, trying to envision it, that there was a little boy out there somewhere and I would ask God to watch over him and to preserve him and to protect him and to lead him in his growing up years so that he would become a strong man of God worthy of trusting my daughter to. Ryan, I wrote to him, I think I might have been praying for you since before the day you were born. I can tell you today I'm convinced that he was that man. I will tell you that one of the thoughts coming down this aisle on this coming Friday, the thought that'll cross my mind as we look down here to the altar and we see Ryan and his groomsmen lined up, the thought will be this. There's the man I've been praying for since before the day he was born. Look, when you love your daughters as much as I love my daughters, their weddings, while they're joyous occasions, for some of us dads, they can feel a little bit like funerals. And in some sense, while I'm walking her down the aisle, I'm actually going to feel like I'm walking the plank. Because like I said earlier, this 50 or 40 foot walk, it's going to forever change us. I'm always going to be Courtney's dad. But come next Friday, it will be time for me to take a step back. Ryan must come first in her life now. He is now ordained by God to be her spiritual leader. She is to leave and cleave. And just because I know that that is true and good and right does not mean at least at one level that it does not hurt a little bit. She's my little girl. And there will be a ton of joy, but it'll be mixed with a bit of sorrow and, and some amount of fear. I'm entrusting my little girl to a man that I did not raise. I don't know what her future holds. I don't know what their future together holds for, for them. And, and I'm no longer the leader. I'm no longer in charge here. And so what I'm going to do when I make that turn on Friday night and walk my little girl down this 40 or 50 foot aisle, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to thank God for Ryan and Ryan's faith and, and for God being faithful to me and answering my prayers with him. And then maybe, while a tear or two falls, I'm going to repeat to myself what Jesus told Jairus as they set out on their walk. When Jairus who was walking with Jesus, but was still a little bit afraid about what was happening to his daughter? Jairus was no longer in control of his daughter's future. It was at that moment. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid, John. Just believe. And I will. I believe. You know why? Because I have, and Courtney has, and Ryan has, and you have a Father in Heaven who feels about me and them and you the way I do about Courtney, who despite the fact that we too have rebelled, despite the fact that we haven't listened and we've pushed his buttons and his boundaries and his curfews, 
Even though we have had eyes for other suitors and rolled our eyes at him and treated him with disdain, even in all that, I have, they have, we all have this heavenly Father that still sees us and loves us, men and women alike, with the same compassion and protection that a father has over his little girl. We have a God who has walked the hallways of the heavens with a message playing in his head when he holds us. If someone does anything to him, if somebody does anything to her, I'll kill them. But you see, as he isn't just thought it. He's done it. Because the scriptures say that he has crushed our enemy under our feet. That our Heavenly Father has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And how did He do that? By being willing, and I get the emotion, I get the passion, I felt it in that first walk down that aisle. He did it by not just though being willing, but actually dying for us so that we might live. Because of our dad, death is no longer undefeated. It wasn't for Jesus, and it need not be for you. And so, what will I be thinking when I turn the corner and walk down this aisle? I'll be thinking that this all went way, way too fast. I'll be wishing that the years had gone by a lot slower, that I had more time with her as a little girl, I'll be, I'll be wishing that I had been a better dad to her, that I had spent more time with her. I'll be wishing that I had fought for her affection at least as much as I fought for her obedience. Dads out there, please hear me about this. It is never too late to fix this. I will be wishing I had been more like her Heavenly Father than the other earthly fathers. I showed her way too much earthly father. I'm going to be thanking God that he chose me to get to be her dad. And as we turn the corner and come down the aisle, I'm going to look and see Ryan up ahead. I'm going to pause right over there. I'm going to look over at Courtney and realize that it's it's not just me and her walking down the aisle. I'm going to look over and like Jairus, I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to walk. I'm not going to be afraid and I'm going to believe. May the Lord bless you and keep you, Ryan and Courtney. The two have indeed now become one. But Courtney, you will always be my little girl.